0: We are in a series that we've entitled Exploring Ecclesiology. And uh, in this series we've been looking at uh, understanding what the church is and what the church is all about. And we've explored uh, some of the the subjects around this uh, incredible topic. Things like what is a church, what characterizes a healthy church, uh, we also talked about the uh, issue of church membership, the ordinances of baptism and communion. And we uh, last week spent our uh, morning speaking on the subject of uh, the elders of the church who are called to lead the church. And this week, uh, with it being uh, the week closest uh, if you will, to uh, the Halloween weekend coming up, we have to talk about what many people believe to be a scary topic, one that uh, strikes fear into people, even though I don't believe it should. Today we talk about the subject of church discipline, and uh, we need to talk about this subject, which is foreign to many uh, different people. It's an issue that is rarely spoken about in our churches today, but one that the scriptures make clear need to be articulated and need to be practiced, for that matter. Uh, but as I said, it, it's something that many haven't heard a message about, many haven't spoken about. In fact, this thing is so important, so uh, crucial to the church. There were uh, both uh, Calvin and Luther in uh, putting together documents, if you will, their ecclesiological, uh, ecclesiological documents, if you will, of the. Church. Church. They said there were three marks of a healthy church: the proper preaching of God's word was number one. Number two was the proper administration of the ordinances, and the third one was the proper administration of church discipline. Now, wow! Churches have changed a great deal from the days of Calvin and Luther we would say yes we believe in the proper uh, preaching of god's word and we would say yes we we want to make sure that we administer the ordinances in the right way communion and baptism uh, but how many churches do you hear talking about church discipline in fact uh, i would i would Beg to offer this morning that many of us probably have only heard maybe one or two sermons in all our years of being in church on this subject. It's something that if it's the third rail, as it's called, the third rail of the Christian church, that we should be talking more about it and addressing the issues that come up as a result. Well, that's what I want to talk about this morning, and I want to kind of give a thesis statement, if you will. To what we want to address today, you can find this on the side of your uh, sermon outline this morning. This is what I have written down. Though church discipline is a very difficult area of doctrine and one that is hard to practice, it never n- and nevertheless rests upon the divine authority of Scripture. It's vital to the purity, power, progress, and purpose of the church. The responsibility and necessity for discipline is not an option for the church. If it obeys the word of God, but a church must equally uh, be concerned that the scriptures carefully followed in the practice of church discipline to maintain the balance of grace and truth. When it comes to church discipline, we must explore this important biblical purpose for the church. It seems to be too much of a rarity these days that we would understand and know what church discipline is all about. And today that's what we want to address, that's what we want to answer this morning is what does God's Word say when it comes to the subject of dealing with individuals, dealing with ourselves when we step out of line, when we live uh, out of the uh, standard that God has laid for us in His Word. So we're going to go to God's Word this morning, Matthew chapter 18. I would ask that you would stand as we uh, look at uh, verses 15 all the way through the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 35. This is what the Word of the Lord says. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as, you're, as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy times seven. Uh, Now, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was unable to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and he canceled the debt and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant. He said, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay all back back all that he owned. This is what your, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, we deal with a very difficult a very touchy subject this morning. Uh, Father, I don't believe it's touchy because You've made it a touchy issue, but uh, we're going to learn that society around us has, has caused a sense of uh, touchiness in our hearts when it comes to this uh, subject of church discipline. Father, I pray that uh, we would never go beyond what Your Word says. Father, that we would never stop short of doing what Your Word says as well. Lord, we need your truth. Uh, We're all sinners and we're all being disciplined by our Father in heaven. And Lord, uh, we are told that uh, we should endure the discipline uh, as good sons. Father, I pray that uh, through what we learn today, that we will know and understand what your will is when we fall. Uh, That we would understand that it is your will that we deal with our sin, that we confess our sin Uh, But Lord, uh, there are times where we don't see our sin. There are times where we neglect uh, to confess our sin. And Father, we need to know it is your will that uh, our uh, brothers and sisters in Christ come around us and hold us accountable. Lord, that it may even uh, come to the place where the church, all of them together, uh, speak to us and confront us of our sin. And Lord, calling us to turn. Lord, we uh, don't like discipline. Uh, No child does but we recognize this is good for us and that it will uh, train us and and bring us up in righteousness. So, Father, give uh, me the words to say that I may articulate clearly what Your Word says on this very important subject of church discipline. To You be the glory, honor, and praise And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. As we look to what the church is and what it's all about we have to look at the subject of church discipline. But to try to do it justice, it, it was a impossibility for me to merely put together any kind of uh, three-point outline. And so I know I'm scaring many of you with seven points, and I'm going to move through them as quickly as possible. But to address the multiple dimensions that come with church discipline, it's important that we break it down in, in such a way. And so uh, I want to get right into the outline this morning. And the first thing we need to address when we deal with church discipline is the problem. There's a problem that we have to deal with. And the idea here is what would force God to write in His Scriptures that church discipline needs to be around? Well, the, the easy answer is uh, our sin. Our sin is the problem. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if we fall short of the glory of God, the Bible says the wage of sin is death. Well, we know that Jesus Christ died on our behalf on the cross of Calvary. We understand that and recognize that. Uh, but what happens when the Christian, the one whose sins have been paid for, uh, are taken care of? What 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 then happens when we sin? Well, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter twelve that we will be disciplined. We won't be disowned. But we'll be disciplined. We will be, uh, if you will, uh, corrected so that we will no longer sin and go on with our lives. Now, we need to understand that none of us, please hear me, none of us are immune to discipline. If you're a Christian and you still sin, which I think, if I'm theologically correct, all of us do, all of us are open to the discipline of God. Now what we've got to get out of our mind is that church discipline is the elders bringing up uh, the name of an individual before all the, the members of the church and saying, hey, uh, this is uh, a person that's done bad things and you need to stay away from him. My friends, that's not church discipline. That is not all that church discipline involves. There are times for that. Very few times, I believe, in the life of a church will a person uh, be asked to leave the church, if you will be shunned by the church. And we'll talk about that in a couple moments. But there is so much more to church discipline. We have to understand that every Christian in our uh, sanctuary today, every Christian in this world is open uh, and should uh, appreciate the doctrine of church discipline. Church discipline reminds us that we are sinners. It reminds us that we cannot live for ourselves. We can't badmouth others. We can't hurt the ones that are around us. We can't live in contrary to God's Word. It is why church discipline is so crucial because like sheep, we all go astray. And we need a shepherd of the sheep. We need one who comes and and at times will bring us back with the, if you will, the hook uh, from the staff and will bring us back uh, to be uh, with them, a part of the flock. We need church discipline. Now, while there may be disagreement, and I would love to do a poll, but while there's maybe disagreement on the mode, if you're a parent here today, and you've been a parent for any amount of time, you recognize the necessity of discipline when it comes to your kids. Amen? Right? Now, we may disagree. There may be those who say, hey, uh, they they uh, don't listen to what you say, uh, give them a time out. There are others who will say, uh, give them a verbal uh, rebuke. There are others that will say, uh, uh, spank them where uh, the good Lord split them, okay? The mode may be different, okay? I'm more of a C point C individual myself. The mode may be different. But I would—I don't know if there's any parent I've ever known, I would say a functional parent, who would say you never have to uh, discipline your kids. I, I can't even imagine what would happen in the Badal home with those three rugrats running around, never being disciplined. What they would say, the words that would come out of their mouth, the things that they would do if we didn't discipline them, if we didn't watch after them, because they 're like sheep they 're like their mom and dad they 'll go and they 'll find themselves in trouble this last week, please don 't judge my wife for my failures, but this last week, my wife had to go take care of Joshua in the back uh, in the back um, yard uh, because he was screaming bloody murder, if you will, because he had fallen somewhere. That's the first strike we have as parents. Number two, Luke is out there with me and I'm working on the lawnmower. And I tell you, I looked down for 22 seconds and that kid went from the back door of the garage out to the corner of the street. And Amanda comes on, damn, you're, you Luke is out in the street and I go running and and there's of course is a lady a lady don't like me very much already as it is And she's just looking and just yes had dumb young parents. They don't know what they're doing You know what? I don't think it was the parents fault. It's the wandering child's fault (laughs) children wander we as Christians wander And so what did I need to do? I needed to grab my son and I needed to tell him, don't go out into the street. Don't do that. Because they need rules. And rules, when they're broken, as they grow older, bring forth consequences. We need to have discipline. So why does it change within the church? We are told within the church that we are the children of God. Why would we not think that the children of God would need to be disciplined? Why why would we not think that as we sin that we would not have the consequences from God himself our heavenly Father who would bring about a pattern of discipline in our lives? So if that's the case, if if it's if it's true that every parent would deal with their a child in that way and if we are those who fall to sin, then why is it that we uh, have, if we have this problem of sin, that very few churches talk about it? I, I was doing an internet search, and, and I didn't find very many sermons on the subject of church discipline. There weren't many. I wanted to see, uh, is this a, a normal pattern? And I, I didn't see very many within the church. I've only preached, to be honest with you, I think two times on this subject in the six years that I've been involved preaching at Village. It's not something that we deal with, but that's uh, something that needs to change. Because few churches exercise this god given purpose for the church. I love what Albert Moler says on this subject. He says the decline of the church'm sorry the decline of church discipline may be the most visible failure of our contemporary church. No longer are we concerned with maintaining purity of confession or lifestyle. the church today sees itself as a voluntary association of autonomous members who have minimal moral accountability to God, much less to one another. The idea here is that we're just a group of volunteers that are saying, hey, I'm here to participate, I'm here to enjoy my time, I'm here to be a part of an association, but don't tell me what I can and can't do. That's not your place. Where, where does that come from? It doesn't seem to come from the Scriptures. Where does it come from? I, I'm here to offer you a, a couple different reasons why I believe that church discipline has become non-existent in the church. And I want you to write these down. The first one I believe is why we as a church do not fall um, in line with God's uh, purpose for the church in disciplining uh, those that wander from the truth the first one is the individualism of america the individualism of america You see, we live in a democracy. And a democracy says that the power is found in the individual. You as an individual have the freedom for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that means if anybody crosses in on your life, liberty, or pursuit of happiness, your unalienable rights have been taken away. Well, let me tell you something. As a brother and sister in Christ, we don't have unalienable rights that we say are off limits to anybody else. We're in the church of Almighty God. We are not in the democracy of the United States as a church. You see, uh, many of us in, in America believe that uh, what I do is my business. If I do something, uh, I will take care of it. I will deal with it. No one is going to tell me what to do. Because of this rise of individualism, uh, we have said, you know what? Church discipline smacks against the very personal freedoms that we have and, and we should get rid of it. The second one is the consumer-driven model of ministry here in America. You see, we have this dilemma as, as a church. Now, the dilemma is, is how we view the people in the church. I am the one that is offering a service. Uh, the elders are here to offer a service. Here is Village Bible Church. Here are the programs that it has. Here are the things that we offer to you. And you are the customer. And the customer is always what? Right. And so when the customer says, I think we need to do a little more of this, or I think I need to live this way or that way, who is it for the church to say, well, you're not right? Because the customer is always right. And so if you, the consumer, say, I want to attend your church, I want to be a part of your church, and I want to have it on my rules, and on my ground, if you will, my ground rules, and in my way, who are we to tell you no? Who are we to tell you that uh, that you can't have it your way right away as Burger King does? The consumer model of ministry throws out church discipline. And number three, the biblical ignorance on the subject. Uh, Christians just don't know what this subject talks about. It doesn't understand what it says. It hasn't read and understood a systematic understanding of what church discipline is all about. And so what they do know about it or what they've seen of it many times is not biblical discipline. And because of that, they bristle because they're ignorant to the understanding of what church discipline is all about. The next one is the misuse of Jesus' words that we not judge others lest we be judged. i got to be honest with you, that that is one of the greatest misuses of Scripture around. The idea here is that we need to be very careful that we do not judge as the judge, jury, and executioner. That's what Jesus is trying to accomplish, is trying to help us understand. Our job is not to judge individuals as if we don't have to be judged ourselves. But if we recognize, if we understand that we too are under judgment, then we understand that we are not judge, jury, and executioner, but we are one who's been judged by God, who will be judged by God, who recognizes that we too are sinful, and without that, we should never judge. Without that, with that idea of perfection in our eyes and in our own lives, we should never judge another and what Jesus is saying is, is the quite, simple, th- quite simply this. You want to be judged by one who thinks they're perfect? Then don't judge that way yourself. Uh, judge others, treat others, Jesus says, as you would like to be treated. Judge others as you would want to be judged based on the Scriptures of what the Lord has laid out. That's why we read from Matthew 18, and I didn't stop at what we would consider the end of the church discipline passage, but we went through the parable of the unmerciful servant. You see, he was forgiven a great debt. He was loved and and mercy was shown upon him. But what did he do? He went and judged in a way that showed no mercy, in a way that he was not judged. We need to judge as Jesus does. Even though he was perfect, he judges with mercy and grace. He gives opportunity for forgiveness. We need to understand that the misuse of Jesus' words cause us to bristle at this subject. The next one is the idea of the view of history and the words that have been immortalized in writings of church discipline. Things like the scarlet letter. Remember that great work of literature? A woman is caught in adultery. And uh, what happens? She's given this great big A to carry around that everywhere she goes, everybody would know that she was an adulterer. And the problem is, is that if I remember uh, my sophomore year or whenever I would have read that book of English, that uh, I believe even the pastor was involved. And he was judging and allowing uh, this type of uh, terrible discipline to take place. Then we read another book and we learn about the Salem witch trials. Of course, a historical event and, and, and the idea of, of burning people at the stake. And we get this idea that that's what church discipline is all about. All it is is a witch hunt. People that think they're better than someone else and judging them and hurting them in a terrible way. And so what we do is we say, well, we don't want to be that. And so we elevate grace and mercy over the understanding of justice and God's Word. And so we have to be careful. We live in a culture that says it isn't about the whole, but it's about the individual. When we fall prey to that, we fall prey to uh, not understanding the problem that we deal with. You see, write this in your outlines. Our problem is because of sin and, and secondly, it's because of society. It's because of our sin. It's because of society. Uh, we as sinners never want to be held accountable. We never want to deal with the issue. I, I, my son's As I've had to discipline them, never have they said, Yeah, Dad, this is great. You're going to discipline me. I'm looking forward to it. Never happens. I don't remember telling my father that. Yeah, Dad, my mom said uh, that uh, you were going to come home and deal with me. And I, I told her, Yeah. Come on, Dad, come home. We don't do that. Why? Because as individuals, we recognize that discipline is not fun. And so we live in a society that instead of looking at God's standard, we look at our own and we say, hey, I don't like it. You don't like it. If we don't like it, let's get rid of it. And so churches find themselves in a great dilemma dealing with society. One final area, the reason why the church doesn't deal with this, and I'll just throw this out there, is because of legal issues. I have not heard I have heard many times many times where a man or a woman who has been disciplined by the church has been sued by the church or sued has sued the church by that individual and because of that thousands of dollars are spent on legal fees and time is wasted not doing ministry but trying to deal with the legal matters of the church my father is a part of a church uh, that dealt with a church discipline situation and for seven years the church was in court dealing with the issue. Uh, praise the Lord, uh, the, the man that uh, took the church to court uh, is now a, a vibrant member of the church. And so it took seven years of dealing with it in the court case finally being thrown out that the man came to his senses and asked for forgiveness and now is a part of the church again. Now this, is, this is something that's dangerous, but it doesn't mean we don't deal with it. So we deal with the problem. The next thing we have to deal with is the principle. We need to deal with the principle. Once we understand the reason that we need discipline as Christians... We must uh, understand then what uh, it it means. What is church discipline? And this is important. What is church discipline? I want you to write this down. I'll I'll repeat it a couple times. Simply put, church discipline can be defined as the following. It can be defined as confrontive and corrective measures taken by another Christian. Confrontive or corrective measures taken by another Christian. Church leaders or membership regarding a matter of sin regarding a matter of sin in the life of a believer it's the confrontive and corrective measures taken by another christian church leaders or membership regarding a matter of sin in the life of a believer that's multidimensional That means church discipline can go when someone walks up to you and says, Brother, I I saw you, I observed you uh, do this certain thing, this thing that God's Word said shouldn't be the case, and I want to confront you about it. I want to ask you, have you sought forgiveness? Have you rectified the situation? That's church discipline. Now, the reason why we bring up church discipline is because in Matthew 18 it says if the person after step after step does not fall in line with the uh, addressing and the rebuke of of those that are involved, that it should be taken to the church. And the church is, if you will, uh, the one that will uh, bring about the final decision of uh, what is the direction of that individual when it comes to long-standing membership within that church but it involves any involvement of discipline from one believer to another. I like what R.C. Sproul says about uh, this idea. He, he says that discipline should never be viewed as corporal punishment. It is discipline which is always designed to train and restore. The church isn't just called to the ministry of reconciliation, but also of nurture and accountability of those within her gates. Part of this nurture and accountability is found in the discipline of its members. And you say, okay, Tim, I understand the principle. I've got it that we need to be held accountable and we need to be confronted from time to time uh, with our sin. But what is the scriptural mandate that has given this principle such a high place? Turn in your Bibles for a moment. I'm going to be turning quickly, so try to keep up with me. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 7. Let's get a biblical understanding of this. We need to understand that one of the reasons why this principle is so important is that God Himself shows us that He disciplines. And we are to imitate God, and we are to do as God does. And we see here that uh, we are told to uh, not make light, in verse 5, of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when He rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those He loves. And He punishes everyone He accepts as a son. So endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone, that's important, everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and are not true sons. Moreover, we all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. But notice what it says. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits? and live our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best but god disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness no discipline seems uh, pleasant at the time but is painful and later on however it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace from those who have been trained by it i've told you before we we talked about uh, the issue of discipline in the series of jonah that God was disciplining Jonah. And I said in that one how thankful I was that I had a father and a mother who disciplined me. Though it was never fun, though it was always painful, I'm so thankful because I look at my life and the things that I was turned away from as a result of that discipline brings great uh, uh, peace to my heart because I was taught, I was trained, I was restored. Because of discipline. God gives us that example. The next example that we see is that not only does God give the example, but discipline is necessary because God is holy. Turn a couple pages more to 1 Peter. To your right, 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. Why is church discipline necessary? Because God's holy. Notice what the text says in 1 Peter 1 verse 15. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Be holy because I am holy. Another translation says, be perfect because I am perfect. And so the second that we're not perfect is the second that God's discipline is a necessity. And when we fail to meet the mark, when we miss the mark and sin, God's discipline is a necessity to accomplish the holiness that God requires of us. The next one is throughout Scripture, and it's just simply this. The commands of Scripture demand discipline if not followed. The Bible says don't do this. It sounds like a, a parent of a, a preschooler. Don't do this. Well, what happens when they do? There's discipline. Stay away from that. Don't say those things. That's the ongoing broken record of Tim and Amanda's life. It always starts with don't. Don't. Whatever you're thinking, don't. Because our children are always thinking of ways, Romans chapter 1, of doing evil of doing wrong. They say, well, that's the pastor's kids. I'm going to tell you, all kids are that way. They think up ways of getting themselves into trouble. Well, like children, we, when we miss the mark of Scripture, it always means discipline. The book of James says that we can follow the law of the Lord in every way and miss it in one mark. We are total lawbreakers. And because we're lawbreakers, it brings on a consequence to our sin. We need to recognize that as Christians. The Word of God tells us to do something. If we don't do it, we will then suffer the consequences. First Peter chapter 4, it tells us that we need to show the world that we're serious about sin. First Peter chapter 4. Notice what the text says. Starting in verse 13 through 19. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the Spirit of glory in God rests on you. If you suffer, the idea here is He's saying, if you're going to suffer, suffer for Christ because it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. For it is the time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will come of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. We need to show the world when we discipline those we love, that as a church, just like as parents, that there are rules and regulations. Not ones that we've made up. Be very, we need to be very careful of that. But ones that the Word of God has laid before us. That there are rules and there needs to be an understanding that we can't do whatever we want, but that we need to show the world we are under the judgment of God. And that if we are going to suffer in this world, it better not be because we've sinned. It better not be because we've done wrong, but because we're suffering for Christ. That's the purpose, we, or the principle that we see. Well, how is that to be accomplished? And why are we to do it? It brings up the purpose. The purpose for church discipline very quickly, let me just give you uh, what are the six reasons for church discipline. I'm just going to list them for you. There are six biblical reasons for church discipline. Number one, to bring glory to God. To bring glory to God and enhance uh, the testimony of the church. Number two, to restore and heal and build up sinning believers. Galatians 6.1 speaks of that. To produce a healthy faith And one that is sound in doctrine. We believe the right things and and trust in the right things. 1 Timothy 1, 19 and 20. Church discipline is the purpose to silence false teachers and their influence in the church. Titus 1, 10 and 11. To set an example for the rest of the church and to promote godly fear. 1 Timothy 5, 20. And the final one is to protect the church from the destructive consequences that occur when churches failed to carry out church discipline. This is where I want you to address. What happens if we don't live out the purpose of church discipline? What happens if we allow, uh, if you will, the family of God to run amok, to to do as they will, to to break every law of God's Word? What happens? Well, the church will be affected. Uh, the individual who is sinning always within the confines of a church will bring uh, a problem within the Church, And that's why we have to deal with it in a biblical way because there are four losses when a church doesn't deal with a wayward individual. Uh, First of all, there's a loss of purity. Discipline is vital uh, to the church and its purity. This is seen in the church uh, that is written about in Paul's letter to the uh, first Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians, that church at Corinth, because it did not deal with sin in a proper way, had all kinds of issues. Because its unwillingness to deal with the hard issue of church discipline, divisions break out in that church. Gross sexual immorality was allowed. Divorce became pervasive. The Lord's Supper became defiled. And as a result, men and women were becoming sick and some were even dying in that church because God was dealing with the individuals because the church was unwilling to do so. We need to recognize that when we fail uh, to live out the discipline that God has called us to, our church will not be pure. Our church will not be one that can be boasted about doing the work of the Lord, about being a holy people. If we don't follow the pattern of church discipline, then we will lose a level of our purity. The Scripture tells us that if there's yeast in the loaf, it affects the whole loaf. It affects all of it, not just a part of it. Brothers and sisters, when we sin, we don't just affect our own lives. We affect others. The greatest example of that is David in his life. David must have thought, hey, it's just a one-night stand. It's nothing big. And what happens? The ripple effect is huge in the life of David because of his sin. We never sin in isolation. It always affects others. It always does. It affects the purity of the local church. Number two there, it's a loss of power. Sin in the life of the church grieves the Holy Spirit. It quenches the Holy Spirit's power. This is best illustrated in Joshua chapter 7. Joshua uh, and the Israelites have gone into the promised land. And following God's command, they are uh, listening to what God has said and doing what God says. They go to Jericho and, and they do the thing that nobody would ever think of an army to do. And that is uh, to walk around a city for seven days. And on the seventh day to walk around it seven times. And once they had done that to blow their trumpets and and to give out a yell, and the walls come tumbling down. Well, then the next city they come up to is the city of Ai, or Ai. And uh, the problem is, is that when Jericho was taken over, God says, I don't want you to take any of the coveted things of Jericho. And everybody listens but one. His name was Achan. And Achan takes some of the treasured possessions of Jericho. And what happens? They go to the next battle. And I is a smaller city than Jericho. I is an easier victory than Jericho. And what happens? The Israelites are routed. They retreat in dismay. Men lose their lives. And Joshua says, what in the world's going on, God? You said this was our land. You said all we had to do was follow you and your commands and we would find victory. And in our second battle, we find defeat. What in the world is going on, God? And God says, there's sin in the camp. Now, it's not the sin of everybody. He says, there's one. He says, go to Achan's tent. Go find out what Achan's been doing. When I told you not to take anything from Jericho, Achan took things. And because of one man's sin, the power of a whole nation, the people of God was taken away. When we don't deal with sin, my friends, we will lose the power we have. Oh, we'll try to still do ministry. We'll try to still do superficial things to uh, deal uh, with the, the ministry at hand, but we will not be effective. This is one of the reasons why I believe the American church is fat and, and filled with money, unimaginable. And yet, because of that, we are spiritually n- not changing the world around us. It's because we don't deal with sin. And we've lost our power just like the people in the book of Joshua chapter 7. The next one is a loss of progress. A church that refuses to practice discipline will see its opportunity for ministry decline. You say, well, where do you get that? There are two churches that are rebuked by Jesus Himself in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, verse 5 tells us this. Revelation 2, verse 5 says this in regards to the church in Ephesus. He says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen repent and do the things you did at first if you do not repent I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place What he's saying is I'm going to remove some things from you I'm going to remove the blessing that I've laid upon you because you have forgotten me You have forgotten what my word has said and because of that it is time for the church at Ephesus to repent Uh, Revelation 6. I'm sorry uh, 3 verse 16 We see the church at Laodicea. He says, I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you now are lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold, and I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so that you can become rich. Uh, to uh, bring white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and uh, salve for your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come in and eat with him And he with me The idea here in the church at Laodicea Is the idea that they uh, Were neither hot nor cold Uh, they, They turned to the importance Of dealing with sin And dealing with the things that God had called them to If we're hot we would deal with them If we were cold we wouldn't do it But we're in the middle Many American churches find themselves in the middle Oh sin isn't very good But who am I to tell you what you can and can't do Who am I to judge that. That's lukewarm Christianity. It's neither hot nor cold. And because of that, Jesus says, hey, I'm not going to dine with you. I'm not going to be in your midst in the way that will bring about blessing. It will end the progress that we have as a church if we don't deal with sin the final one is a loss of purpose. Quite simply, 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us we are called to be Christ's ambassadors. We are called to be uh, the uh, ones who bring, a, bring forth good news to a lost and dying world. We are called to be holy and distinct. And if we allow uh, us as members of this church uh, to sin, to not follow God's ways, then we're no different than the world. Sadly, in the American church today, based on uh, both secular uh, studies and Christian studies, that the American church, the American evangelical, is not much different than, than Peter Pagan. There's no no difference. Our divorce rates are similar. Our issues of of unhappiness are similar. Our problems with debt and materialism is similar. Our issue with conflict with others is similar. And so when we go and tell people, I've got good news. I've got something I want to share with you. I have found life. The person says to you, your life is no different than mine. Who are you to tell me that you have life? Who are you to tell me that my way of life is any different? You watch the same movies I do. You do the same things. Your mouth says the same words I do. Who are you to judge me in such a way? when we don't live holy and upright lives, when we lose out on the purity of the church, we lose our place in the world as Christ's ambassador. We can no longer tell the world of their sin because we need to be busy worrying about our own sin in that place. Next we have, now that we've dealt with the principle and the problem and the purpose, we need to deal with the people who, who is to be involved Who, who is to be disciplined? The general answer is Christians who fall short of the glory of God. All of us who fall short of the glory of God must uh, be disciplined. Now, scripture is clear that sin must be dealt with. It's clear in that. That sin brings forth consequences. We need to understand that uh, when we look at those who may be put under church discipline, who may need to be disciplined, there are three people that are mentioned in Scripture. The first one is are the people that are caught in sin. Uh, It involves people that are caught in sin. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Very important passage that we need to recognize as, uh, as we deal with this subject of who might be involved in church discipline. Notice what Paul says to the church at Galatia. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. The Scripture is quite clear in this verse that it isn't any particular sin. In fact, there's no uh, passage in Scripture that says, all right, A, B, C, and D are the disciplinable sins in the church. That's why it's so important that you understand that any sin that we commit, any time that any of us miss the mark, we are under the discipline of God. It may be, as we'll talk about in a couple moments, something that is, is dealt with uh, uh, very quickly or it may be over a period of time, but we're all under discipline for those things. Now notice what it says. It does not give a list there. It says if someone is caught in a sin. It's very generic. This is the broad word sin there is the broad Greek word for all types of sin. Your garden variety sin. If it's in the Bible, if God said don't do it and you did it, it's sin. And this is what it is. Now the idea here in Galatians 6.1, the kind of sin that is being dealt with here is not per se a premeditated sin, but one, if you will, a sin of passion. I, I don't mean it that it's an issue of lust or immorality, but it's a sin uh, that is dealt with. We see something that we want to do or, or or we think about something in our mind, and before we've really thought through it, we've done it. The lie is out. The harsh word has been said. The evil thought has been thought and and we find ourselves falling prey to temptation. And so the Bible says, be gentle with them. Those who are spiritual should restore them. Do it gently, but it also says that you may also, but watch yourself, that you may also not be tempted. The idea here is that the believers is on a slippery slope. And you who have good, more solid footing need to come up and grab that individual and help them up in their time of need. But be careful, because you could slip as well. Yesterday uh, uh my family was out up up in Galena at my in-laws house and uh, my in-laws live uh and they're in a area where their house backs up to this huge hill and uh, we wanted to go to this rock formation my uh, two boys and I and uh, they're relying on me not to slip as we're climbing up this hill and of course it's muddy and wet and uh and I kept helping my sons up and my uh, son Noah said dad who's going to make sure you don't slip You're worried about me who's gonna watch you and that's something we have to be very careful with So I had to be all the more careful because I wasn't just taking care of myself But I was watching two kids and so I had to make sure that I did not slip The idea here is that we're on a slippery slope and as we deal with this individual who is caught in sin We need to be watchful. We need to be mindful that it's a slippery slope. We can fall into it as well The next group of people that are involved with discipline are those found in our key text today, and those are those believers who are in conflict with others. Matthew 18. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but Matthew 18 is not the, if you will, the generic way that a church disciplines. I know we spend a lot of time in churches using Matthew 18 as the way that we deal with things, but we need to understand the context of Matthew 18 is about conflict with another brother. If your brother sins against you, that's the issue that is there. We live as a group of sinners. And as sinners, we're going to offend one another. We're going to hurt one another. And so Jesus lays out: if your brother offends you, this is what you are to do. But I would say that you you have to take verse fifteen through twenty, and you always have to connect it with the idea of the parable of the lost sheep before it, and then the parable of the unmerciful servant. You put those together. You bookend those things, and Matthew eighteen fifteen through twenty makes a lot more sense. And so the individual that needs to be disciplined are those that are in conflict with one another. And what that means is other brothers and sisters, if if two brothers are, are fighting and struggling with each other, and maybe one has said a harsh word to the other or something like that, and there's an offense, it needs to be dealt with. How can we say we love our God in heaven, First John says, if we do not love our brothers? And so if we're in conflict with others, how can we have fellowship with God when we don't have fellowship with one another? It needs to be dealt with. Believers who are in conflict with others must begin the process of being disciplined, first of all, privately, which we'll talk about in a moment, and then, as needed, it progresses. The final one is those believers who live in contradiction with Scripture. And what this means is because there's no list of what are the disciplinable uh, sins... That anytime time a believer says, I am not going to follow God's word in this way, they should be disciplined. Think about this. I don't tell my children, you're only going to be spanked when you do this, this, and this. I reserve the right any time they disobey to spank them, right? Right? I don't give them a list and say, here are the ones that you're going to get spanked for. I say, you disobey me, you live in contradiction with what I say, and you're going to be disciplined. We need to recognize that as Christians, when we fall prey to sin, or we fall prey to a line of thinking, whether it is immorality, whether it's doctrinal impurity, whether it's uh, uh, in uh, creating division, Whether it's the issue of false teaching or even spiritual idleness that is brought about in Scripture, we need to understand that when we live in contradiction to the Word of God, we open ourselves up for the discipline of God, the accountability of one another, and the possible discipline from the entire church. We are not our own, but we were bought with a price. My children are not their own right now. They're mine. And they will do what I say. Why? Because I love them. Because I know that by themselves, they are unable to know what is right. They are unable to do what is good without someone there to teach them and train them in the righteous ways of God. And so we need to understand as a church that when anybody goes the opposite way of what God's Word says, if they say, you know what, I know what you're saying and I don't care what you say, you're not right, I'm right, then we've got a problem. We have to deal with it. I can't look at my son, my oldest son, and and he says, you know what, Dad, I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to do what you say. Well, I know and I recognize i got two younger sons sitting there watching it. And if they see their dad say, that's all right, son, you can do whatever you want. That's right. Not only has that leaven, if you will, infected one child, have I not dealt with it, but what are my two other boys thinking? Well, Noah got away with it. Why can't I? And then, then they have the temptation to do well. Noah didn't get in any trouble. Why would I get into any trouble? This is why we have to not show par- uh, partiality. We must be impartial in all things because it doesn't just involve the person, but it affects the entire group of individuals. I want you to understand. I want you to be uh, to get this in your head. The people that are involved in discipline are all of us. Don't think of the person that's divisive. Don't think about the person that finds themselves in sin right now. All of us are open and should be open to the discipline of God. Now, once we understand that we're all involved in it and that we fall into each of these because we're sinners, then the question must be, what is the path? What is the path? Now that we've understood, I'm sorry, the, the process, not the path, the process. Thank you for putting that up there. What is the process? The scripture shows us there are three levels of discipline. This is important, because when we talk about discipline, we have to recognize this. The first one is, and I'm going to illustrate each of these through my own parenting uh, that I'm doing now, because it will help us understand how these look. The first way that we discipline in the church is formative discipline. Write that down, formative discipline. The idea here, formative discipline, can be seen in two ways. First of all, there's a private nature to the formative discipline. Uh, write this passage down: First Timothy chapter four, verse seven. First Timothy chapter four, verse seven. This is what Paul says. Uh, let's see here. It's First Timothy chapter four, verse seven and eight. Have no have uh, nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself. To be godly for physical training is some value, but godliness has value for all things holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. We need to recognize that the first step of church discipline is us disciplining ourselves. How do we do that? 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us how we are to do that. It tells us that we are to continue, verse 14, continue in what you've learned to become convinced of because you know those whom you've learned it from and how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures what are able to make you wise. Uh, for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You take the Word of God and you train yourself up towards godliness. God says, don't do this, you don't do it. God says, flee from this, you flee from it. God says, do a whole bunch of that, and you do a whole bunch of that. How do we see that in the parenting life? You see it in the life of the Bedals right now. We are forming in our three boys what they are to do. And it's through good encouragement. Joshua, Noah, and, and Luke do this. Speak nice to people. Have good manners. Uh, be subject to those that are in authority. Don't back talk people. Show love. Be merciful. Be quick to forgive. Just because someone hits you doesn't mean you hit them back. We form in them godly teaching. This is done in love and sincerity. The second one is corrective. The second one is corrective. The idea here is that it's no longer forming the positive, but it's dealing with the negative. The idea here is I watch my son hit his brother. I stop and I don't say, hey, uh, let me tell you, it's not good to not hit your brother. Don't hit your brother. It is, you've hit your brother, now stop doing it. And if you keep hitting your brother, then we're going to deal with it, which is kind of an oxymoron because I'm going to hit you, which I've never understood, but it worked for my dad. It works for me. Okay, And so it needs to be corrective. The idea is is this is a warning shot. Stop living the way you're living. Stop doing what you're doing. Now I would say that my corrective discipline as a parent is not what uh, I would say is the final straw. I would say that the corrective discipline usually is a grab around the nap of the neck or, or the arm, you know, the fleshy part of the arm, somewhere where nobody can see what you're doing and you kind of just grab them and all of a sudden your son buckles a little bit and says, what, what? What am I doing? My wife does the same thing to me when I open my big mouth. And I've What? What, what did I say? It's corrective. Stop doing what you're doing. Stop it, because you're getting yourself into trouble. It's corrective. Paul does this with Peter. When it says that he goes and he in Galatians, it says that he opposes Peter. He corrects him. Stop doing what you're doing, Peter. You're showing hypocrisy. Cut that out. The final one is punitive. It's punitive. The idea here is that uh, someone will not listen to the formative uh, scriptures that have been laid out before them. Because of that, they've... uh, continued to live in their sin, and so you correct them, and you deal with it, and they say, no, I'm still unwilling to do it, then there's punitive. The idea here is that it's not just corrective, but it is a time for punitive discipline. This means that you take steps to deal with a person in a severe way. This no longer is just some disobedience, but this is blatant and willful disobedience, and it must be dealt with. Within the family life, this is inflicting pain on a child. What I mean by that is either through the rod or or through the taking of privileges. Punitive starts there. It addresses the issue once and for all. It says, we will not stand idly by and watch you do this. I will tell you, it is very rare that I spank my children. I spank them when my words do not carry the authority that they need to anymore. That I have to, if you will, reintroduce myself as dad in their lives. And so punitive discipline isn't something we do all the time. It is a last resort. One of the reasons why is I detest it. I hate having to spank my children. It breaks my heart watching them cry. It breaks my heart listening to them beg for me not to. But it needs to be done in my opinion. Now, punitive discipline can go even farther. I remember there was a time that I told my parents I did not want to follow their ways. I did not want to do what they had told me to do. And I thought it'd be better that I not have to follow their rules. You know what my dad said? (laughs) There's the door. Grab your bag and there you go. I'll still write you off on my taxes, but you're not in the house anymore. There's a time even in punitive discipline where the person, where the child says, you know what, I don't want nothing to do with you, mom and dad. I want nothing to do with you, family. And then you show them the door and you say, you know what, you think you can live without us? Go ahead and try. Go ahead and try. So how are we to then move in this? What's the, if you will, what is then uh, the path that we are to take? Matthew 18, just very quickly, we don't need to spend a lot of time on this. What is the path that you take? Matthew 18, while it's dealing with personal issues, offenses with brothers and sisters, uh, there's a simple step-by-step process that can be used, the path to it. Verse 15, write this down in your outlines, is private interaction. Someone sins, and you see it, you observe it, someone offends you. Someone's living in, in a sinful way. And you are to go to them. The Bible says in Matthew 18 that you are to privately go to them and speak to them. You're not to go and talk with everybody else about it. You are not to uh, go and get a whole group of people and have mob action against the individual. Matthew 18 uh, verse 15 tells us quite clearly you are to go to that individual. If your brother sins against you, go and show him as your fault just between the two of you. Start there. Don't have to bring in your brother Fred or your, or your friend Sally and say, hey, come with me. You go and you say, I've been offended. You go and say, I've watched you in sin. And it says if they, if they see their ways, you've won your brother over. Discipline is over. It's done. If my son does something I don't want him to do and I have to correct him and he stops doing what I've asked him not to do, my job isn't then to go and say, well, uh, I know you did what I told you to do. I'm going to spank you anyway. No, it stops with corrective discipline. And so if your brother sins against you, you go to them and in private interaction, you deal with that issue. You address it. Number two, it may involve pairs to verify. Notice verse 16, but if he will not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every matter may be established by the testimony or two or three witnesses. The idea here is if the person says in your private interaction, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't do what you said. Then take two or three and gather with them. Again, quietly and address it paul says that uh uh you uh, uh karen didn't uh, didn't uh do this or or did that and uh and we've heard paul's account of it and and we believe that to be true in fact uh, uh here's tony here with you and and he saw some similar actions and we're here to address you turn from your sin again galatians 6, one is the is the thing that we need to understand that we find someone in sin we deal with them gently loving them trying to win them over trying to win them back to the fold even in that process you want to be gentle you want to be loving but in this one you're being a little more corrective you're saying hey now there's two or three of us that are saying, you need to change. It's time for you to listen. The next one is a public rebuke. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. The idea here is that uh, what happens then is that there's a public rebuke. If this person is unwilling to see the error of their ways, even after two or three have gone to them and have addressed it, it needs to be brought to the elders, and the elders need to then bring it to the church and say, we've got a John Doe, and John Doe was confronted in private and wasn't won over. John Doe, was the sin was brought to John Doe by two or three who were able to witness it as well, and he wasn't won over. And we, as the elder board, have addressed John Doe, and it still hasn't been taken care of and dealt with, and so we have to bring it to the church. Now, Matthew 18 says that once that happens, we are to then put them out. If they fail to follow uh, the rebuke of the church, we are to put them out. It says to treat them. If they don't listen to the church, if they refuse to listen... Treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Very quickly, what this means is the following. There are two ways you can put someone out. Number one, you can treat them as a pagan and tax collector. Now, people have used that, and they say, well, what that means is you don't talk to them, you don't do anything. That's not the step there that Jesus is talking about. The idea there is you treat them like an unbeliever. Do you treat an unbeliever harshly? Do you deal with them in a harsh way? Do you not talk to them? Your neighbor's an unbeliever, I'm sure. Do you talk with them? Do you address them? Are you engaged with them? Yes, but what Scripture tells us is anytime we're in the presence of an unbeliever, we need to be taking them to their need. What's their need? That they have a, a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. If they don't trust Christ as their savior, who cares what's going on in their truck and what's going on in the engine of their truck or how the weather is? We have to address the church, uh, I'm sorry, address that unbeliever in the way that brings them to their need. How do we deal with someone who refuses the church? We dress them in their need. You see them in the grocery store, you don't turn tail and walk the other way. You go to them and say, you know what? The church has said it's time for you to repent. It's time for you to repent. We love you. We want to see you restored to the church. But turn from your sin. Please, for the good of your life, for the good of the church, turn from your wicked ways. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says that we can put them out, and what it means is handing them over to the devil. The idea here is shunning. What that means is that someone is in willful disobedience and is creating division within the church because of their sin, and you say, you know what? You throw them out of the church, and you say, you know what? Let the devil deal with you. Now, that person, I don't believe, loses their salvation, but what it does is it takes away the blessing of the church and it allows the devil to deal with that individual. First Corinthians chapter 5 talks about that in more specific. So, how do we close this thing down? I've run out of time. I knew I would. How do we close this thing down? What is, what is the final step? Point seven, what's the plan? What's the plan? There are three plans that I three things I want you to do as a church. What are we to do with this? A lot of information. What's the application to this? Number one, pursue holiness. Pursue holiness. God has called us to be holy. And church discipline is a reminder that we aren't holy. And so remember that we are to choose obedience over disobedience, holiness over uh, uh, unholiness, that we are to pursue uh, righteousness over uh, unrighteousness, that we are to pursue the goodness of God instead of immorality. We as believers must choose to pursue holiness. And I'll tell you, that's a battle in and of itself. I could preach a whole sermon on that. Pursue holiness. Run away from sin. Pursue the godliness. It's hard work. It takes discipline. But do it with all your might. Number two, uh, be people of grace. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8 reminds us of something that we must remember as we deal with sin. And that is 1 Peter 4, 8 says... Uh, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sin. You know, when we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, when we're offended by someone else, love covers that. When we live upright and holy lives and we are living love lives with God, living in love with Him, and we will be people of grace. When we deal with conflict, when we deal with discipline, always be a person of grace. Balance grace and truth. John chapter 1. Jesus Christ was full of grace and truth. Be merciful, be gracious, but also be truthful. Uh, And also finally, uh, live at peace with all men. Romans 12, 18, as far as it depends on you, live at peace. Most church discipline that I believe will take place in this church will be as a result, please hear me, will be a result of your conflict with another person. I believe it's conflict with another person within the church a person within your family or or a person outside of the church You're going to deal with that. And so as far as it depends on you strive to live at peace if the body of Christ is to live and act with one another in a certain way, then live that way, as the Bible tells us to. To love our brothers and sisters in Christ. When we're called to love our husbands and love our wives, live at peace with them. Love them as Christ has told you to. Don't be in conflict with them. When it comes to your children, love them. Don't uh, uh, lead them to bitterness and frustration. We as individuals are sinful. And when we have sin in our lives, we are going to live in strife with one another. What causes fights and quarrels among you? It is because we're selfish. We want it our way. But if we live at peace with all, then we will deal with it in the formative steps, not in the other steps that are after that corrective impunitive. I hope and my prayer has been that this made sense and that I know we went through a lot of stuff, but it is through this proper understanding of church discipline, my friends, that we can purify ourselves and that we can keep this church pure. This is what the Scriptures say. It says that when we are holy, we will see God. Let us strive to that end. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your Word this morning. Father, we are sinners. And because of our sin, we will deal with these issues of sin in our lives, as individuals, and within the church. So Lord, help us. Father, I pray that you would give wisdom and insight to every person to discern when they should be involved in holding another accountable. Father, I pray for the leaders of this church that we would recognize the times where uh, sin is not being dealt with and that it needs to be addressed in a more public way. Father, I pray that amidst all of that, that we would show grace and truth. Father, we're not perfect either, and we recognize that we too have been forgiven such a great debt. And so, Lord, remind us of that. Remind us that while we must speak with truth, that grace must be a part of it as well. Lord, we want to do this not for our own gain, not because we enjoy it, but because we know that discipline brings forth a fruit of righteousness. And so, Lord, produce in this church righteousness in the lives of its people, and the lives of its leaders, so that the world around us will see that we're serious about sin and wanting to live in, in, in opposition to that sin because we want to live for Christ. Lord, take us from this place as we are formed, as we're trained more in the discipline of God, in our ABFs and uh, in our Bible studies throughout this week. In Christ's name we pray, amen.